You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. Apollo 8 launched at 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on December 21, 1968, using the Saturn V's three stages to achieve Earth orbit. The Titan II launch vehicle used for the Gemini program had been notoriously rough riding, and technicians promised the astronauts that the Saturn V, which was designed for the Apollo program rather than adapted from a missile, would have a much smoother ride. Lovell and Borman, both Gemini veterans, found this promise did not disappoint. During liftoff, they reported feeling nothing but a dull, muted rumble in the distance. Once the vehicle reached Earth's orbit, both the crew and Houston flight controllers spent the next two hours and 38 minutes checking that the spacecraft was in proper working order and ready for translunar injection. The proper operation of the Saturn 4B third stage of the rocket was crucial. In the last unmanned test, it had failed to reignite for translunar injection. During the flight, three fellow astronauts served on the ground as capsule communicators, usually referred to as CAPCOMs, on a rotating schedule. The Capcoms were the only people who regularly communicated with the crew. Michael Collins was the first Capcom on duty at 2 hours, 27 minutes and 22 seconds after launch radioed, Apollo 8, you are go for translunar injection. This communication signified that Mission Control had given official permission for Apollo 8 to go to the moon. Over the next 12 minutes before the TLI burn, the Apollo 8 crew continued to monitor the spacecraft and the Saturn 4B's third stage. 
The engine ignited on time and performed the TLI burn perfectly. After the Saturn IV-B had performed its required tasks, it was jettisoned. The crew then rotated the spacecraft to take some photographs of the spent stage and then practiced flying in formation with it. As the crew rotated the spacecraft, they had their first views of the Earth as they moved away from it. This marked the first time humans could view the whole Earth at once. Borman became worried that the Saturn IV-B was staying too close to the command service module and suggested to Mission Control that the crew perform a separation maneuver. Mission Control first suggested pointing the spacecraft towards Earth and using the reaction control system thrusters on the service module to add three feet per second away from the Earth. But Borman did not want to lose sight of the Saturn IV-B. After discussion, the crew and mission control decided to burn in this direction, but at nine feet per second instead. These discussions put the crew an hour behind their flight plan. Five hours after the launch, mission control sent a command to the Saturn IV booster to vent its remaining fuel through the engine bell to change the booster's trajectory. The Saturn IV-B would then pass the moon and enter into a solar orbit, posing no further hazard to Apollo 8. The Saturn IV-B subsequently went into a 0.99 by 0.92 astronomical unit solar orbit with an inclination of 23.47 degrees from the plane of the elliptic and, elliptical or and an orbital period of 340.8 days. After the insertion into translunar orbit, the Saturn IV-B third stage became a derelict object. It will continue to orbit the Sun for many years. The Apollo 8 crew were the first humans to pass through the Van Allen radiation belts, which extended up to 15,000 miles from the Earth. Scientists predicted that passing through the belts quickly at the spacecraft's high speed would cause a radiation dosage of no more than a chest X-ray or one milligray. During a year, the average human receives a dose of two to three milligray. To record the actual radiation dosages, each crew member wore a personal radiation dosimeter that transmitted data to Earth, as well as three passive film dosimeters that showed the cumulative radiation experienced by the crew. By the end of the mission, the crew experienced an average radiation dose of 1.6 milligrays. Now for the lunar trajectory. Jim Lovell's main job as command module pilot was as navigator. Although mission control performed all the actual navigation calculations, it was necessary to have a crew member serving as navigator so that the crew could return to Earth in case of loss of communication with mission control. Lovell navigated by star sightings using a sextant built into the spacecraft measuring the angle between a star and the Earth's or Moon's horizon. This task was difficult 
because a large cloud of debris around the spacecraft formed by venting the Saturn IV-B made it hard to distinguish the stars. By seven hours into the mission, the crew was about one hour and 40 minutes behind flight plan. Because of the problems in moving away from the Saturn IV-B and Lovell's obscured star sightings, the crew now placed the spacecraft into passive thermal control, also called the barbecue roll, in which the spacecraft rotated about once per hour along its long axis to ensure that even heat distribution across the surface of the spacecraft. In direct sunlight, the spacecraft could be heated to over 200 degrees Celsius or 392 degrees Fahrenheit. While, in the sh while the parts in the shadows would be minus 100 degrees Celsius or minus 148 degrees Fahrenheit. These temperatures could cause the heat shields to crack and propellant lines to burst. Because it was impossible to get a perfect roll, the spacecraft swept out a cone as it rotated. The crew had to make minor adjustments every half hour as the cone pattern got larger and larger. The first mid-course correction came 11 hours into the flight. Testing on the ground had shown that the service propulsion system engine had a small chance of exploding when burned for long periods unless its combustion chamber was coated first. Burning the engine for a short period would accomplish coating. This first correction burn was only 2.4 seconds and added about 20.4 feet per second velocity prograde, which is in the direction of travel. This change was less than the planned 24.8 feet per second because of a bubble of helium in the oxidizer lines which caused unexpected low propellant pressure. The crew had to use the small RCS thrusters to make up the shortfall. The two later planned mid-course corrections were canceled because the Apollo 8 trajectory was found to be perfect. Eleven hours into the flight, the crew had been awake for more than 16 hours. Before launch, NASA had decided that at least one crew member should be awake at all times to deal with problems that might be arise. Borman started the first sleep shift but found sleeping difficult because of the constant radio chatter and mechanical noises. After about an hour after starting his sleep shift, Borman attained permission from ground control to take a second all sleeping pill. The pill had little effect. Borman eventually fell asleep and then woke feeling ill. He vomited twice and had a bout of diarrhea. This left the spacecraft full of small globules of vomit and feces, which the crew cleaned up as well as they could. Borman initially did not want everyone to know about his medical problems, but Lovell and Anders wanted to inform Mission Control. 
The crew decided to use the data storage equipment, which could tape voice recordings and telemetry and dump them into mission control at high speed. After recording a description of Borman's illness, they asked Mission Control to check the recording, stating they would like an evaluation of the voice comments. The Apollo 8 crew and Mission Control medical personnel held a conference using an unoccupied second floor control room. There were two identical control rooms in Houston on the second and third floors only one of which was used during a mission. The conference participants concluded that there was little to worry about and that Borman's illness was either a 24-hour flu, as Borman thought, or a reaction to the sleeping pill. Researchers now believe that he was suffering from space adaptation syndrome, which affects about a third of astronauts during their first day in space as their vestibular systems adapts to weightlessness. Space adaptation syndrome had not occurred on previous spacecraft, Mercury and Gemini, because those astronauts couldn't move freely in the small cabins of those spacecraft. The increased cabin space in the Apollo command module afforded astronauts greater freedom of movement contributing to symptoms of space sickness for Borman and later astronaut Russell Schwerkert during Apollo 9. The cruise phase was relatively uneventful part of the flight, except for the crew checking that the spacecraft was in working order and they were on course. During this time, NASA scheduled a television broadcast at 31 hours after launch and the Apollo 8 crew used a two kilogram camera that broadcasted in black and white only, using a videocom tube. The camera had two lenses, a very wide angle 160 degree lens and a telephoto nine degree lens. And during the first broadcast, the crew gave a tour of the spacecraft and attempted to show how the Earth appeared from space. However, Difficulties aiming the narrow angle lens without the aid of a monitor to show what it would look like and what they were looking at made showing the Earth impossible. Additionally, the Earth's image became saturated by any bright source without proper filters. In the end, all the crew could show was people watching back on Earth was a bright blob. After broadcasting for 17 minutes, the rotation of the spacecraft took the high-gain antenna out of view of the receiving stations on Earth, and they ended the transmission with Lowell wishing his mother a happy birthday. By this time, the crew had completely abandoned the planned sleep shifts. Lowell went to sleep 32 and a half hours into the flight, three and a half hours before he planned to. A short while later, Anders also went to sleep after taking a sleeping pill. The crew was unable to see the moon for much of the outward cruise. Two factors made the moon almost impossible to see from inside the spacecraft. Three of the five windows fogging up due to outgassed oils from the silicon sealant and the attitude required for the PTC. 
It was not until the crew had gone behind the moon that they would be able to see it for the first time. Apollo 8 made a second television broadcast at 55 hours into the flight. This time the crew rigged up filters meant for the still cameras so that they could acquire images of the Earth through the telephoto lens. Although difficult to aim as they had to maneuver the entire spacecraft, the crew was able to broadcast back to Earth first television pictures of the Earth. The crew spent the transmission describing the Earth and what was visible in the colors they could see. The transmission lasted for 23 minutes. At about 55 hours and 40 minutes into the flight, the crew of Apollo 8 became the first humans to enter the gravitational sphere of influence of another celestial body. In other words, the effect of the moon's gravitational force on Apollo 8 became stronger than that of the Earth. At the time it happened, Apollo 8 was 38,759 miles from the moon and had a speed of 3,990 feet per second or 1,220 miles per second relative to the moon. This historic moment was of little interest to the crew since they were calculating their trajectory with respect to the launch pad at Kennedy Space Center. They would continue to do so until they performed the last mid-course correction, switching to a reference frame based on ideal orientation for the second engine burn they would make in lunar orbit. It was only 13 hours until they would be in lunar orbit. The last major event before lunar orbit was a second mid-course correction. It was in retrograde against the direction of travel and slowed the spacecraft down by two feet per second, effectively lowering the closest distance that the spacecraft would pass the moon. At exactly 61 hours after launch, about 24,200 miles from the moon, the crew burned the RSC for 11 seconds. They would now pass 71.7 miles from the lunar surface. At 64 hours into the flight, the crew began to prepare for lunar orbit insertion one. This maneuver had to be formed perfectly and due to orbital mechanics, had to go be on the far side of the moon out of the contact with the Earth. After mission control was pulled for a go-no-go -no -go decision, the crew was told that at 68 hours, they were go and riding the best bird we can find. At 68 hours and 50 minutes, the spacecraft went behind the moon and out of radio contact with Earth. With 10 minutes before the LOI-1, the crew began one last check of the spacecraft systems and made sure that every switch was in the correct place. At that time, they finally got their first glimpse of the moon. They had been flying over the unlit side and it was Lowell who saw the first shafts of sunlight obliquely illuminating the lunar surface. The lunar orbit insertion burn was only two minutes away, so the crew had little time to appreciate 
the view. Finally comes lunar orbit. The SPS ignited at 69 hours, 8 minutes, and 16 seconds after launch and burned for 4 minutes and 7 seconds, placing the Apollo 8 spacecraft in orbit around the moon. The crew described the burn as being the longest four minutes of their lives. If the burn had not lasted exactly the correct amount of time, the spacecraft would have ended up in a highly elliptical lunar orbit or even flung off into space. If it had lasted too long, they <coughs> would have struck the moon. After making sure the spacecraft was working, they finally had a chance to look at the moon, which they would orbit for the next 20 hours. On Earth, mission control continued to wait. If the crew had not burned the engine, or if the burn had not been lasted the planned length of time, the crew would appear early from behind the moon. However, this time came and went without Apollo 8 reappearing. Exactly at the calculated moment, the signal was received from the spacecraft, indicating it was in a 193.3 by 69.5 mile orbit about the moon. After reporting on the status of the spacecraft, Lovell gave the first description of what the lunar surface looked like. The moon is essentially gray, no color. Looks like plaster of Paris, or sort of grayish beach sand. We can see quite a bit of detail. The sea of fertility doesn't stand out as well here as it does back on Earth. There's not as much contrast between that and the surrounding craters. The craters are all rounded off. There are quite a few of them. Some of them are newer. Many of them look like, especially the round ones, look like hit by meteorites or projectiles of some sort. Langrenus is quite a huge crater. It's got a central cone to it. The walls of the crater are terraced, about six or seven different terraces on the way down. Lovell continued to describe the terrain they were passing over. One of the crew's major tasks was reconnaissance of planned future landing sites on the moon, especially one in Mare Tranquilitas that would be the Apollo 11 landing site. The launch time of Apollo 8 had to be chosen to give the best lighting conditions for examining the site. A film camera had been set up in one of the spacecraft windows to record a frame every second of the moon below. Bill Anders spent much of the next 20 hours taking as many photographs as possible of targets of interest. By the end of the mission, the crew had taken 700 photographs of the moon and 150 photographs of the Earth. 
throughout the hour that the spacecraft was in contact with Earth. Vorman kept asking how the data for the SPS looked. He wanted to make sure that the engine was working and could be used to return early to the Earth if necessary. He also asked that they receive a go-no-go -no -go decision before they pass behind the moon on each orbit. As they reappeared for their second pass in front of the moon, the crew set up the equipment to broadcast a view of the lunar surface. Anders described the craters that were, they were passing over. And at the end of his second orbit, they performed the 11-second lunar injection burn of the SPS to circularize the orbit to 70 by 71.3 miles above the moon's surface. Through the next two orbits, the crew continued to keep check of the spacecraft and to observe and photograph the moon. During the third pass, Borman read a small prayer for his church. He had been scheduled to participate in a service at St. Christopher's Episcopal Church near Seabrook, Texas. But due to Apollo 8 flight, he was unable to. A fellow prisoner and engineer at Mission Control, Rod Rose, suggested that Borman read the prayer which could be recorded and then replayed during the service. Then came the shock of all shocks. When the spacecraft came out from behind the moon for its fourth pass across the front, the crew witnessed Earthrise for the first time in human history. Just to be precise, NASA's Lunar Orbiter 1 took the very first picture of an Earthrise from the vicinity of the moon on August 23, 1966. Back to Apollo 8, Borman saw the Earth emerging from behind the lunar horizon and called in excitement to the others, taking a black and white photograph as he did so. In the ensuing scramble, Anders took Earthrise, a more famous color photo, later picked by Life magazine as one of its hundred photos of the century. Due to the synchronous rotation of the moon about the Earth, Earthrise is not generally visible from the lunar surface. Earthrise is generally only visible when orbiting the moon, other than at selected places near the moon's limb, where the libration carries the Earth slightly above and below the lunar horizon. Anders continued to take photographs while Lovell assumed control of the spacecraft so Borman could rest. Despite the difficulties resting in the cramped and noisy spacecraft, Borman was able to sleep for two orbits, awakening periodically to ask questions about their status. Borman awoke fully, however, when he was started to hear his fellow crew members make mistakes. They were beginning not to not understand questions and would have to ask for the answers to be repeated. 
Borman realized that everyone was extremely tired having not had a good night's sleep in over three days. Taking command, he ordered Anders, Anders and Lovell to get some sleep and that the rest of the flight plan regarding observing the moon be scrubbed. At first, Anders protested, saying that he was fine, but Borman would not be swayed. At last, Anders agreed as long as Borman would set up the camera to continue taking automatic shots of the moon. Borman also remembered that there was a second television broadcast planned, and with so many people expected to be watching, he wanted the crew to be alert. For the next two orbits, Anders and Lovell slept while Borman sat at the helm. On subsequent Apollo missions, crews would avoid this situation by sleeping on the same schedule. As they rounded the moon for the ninth time, the second television transmission began. Borman introduced the crew, followed by each man giving his impression of the lunar surface and what it was like to be orbiting the moon. Borman described it as being a vast, lonely, forbidding expanse of nothing. Then, after talking about what they were flying over, Anders said the crew had a message for all those on the earth each man on board read a section from the biblical creation story from the book of Genesis. Borman finished the broadcast by wishing a Merry Christmas to everyone on Earth. His message appeared to sum up the feelings that all three crewmen had from their vantage point in lunar orbit. And Borman said, and from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. The only task left for the crew at this point was to perform the trans-earth injection, or TIE, which was scheduled for two and a half hours after the end of the television transmission. The TIE was the most critical burn of the flight. Any failure of the SPS to ignite would strand the crew in lunar orbit with little hope of escape. As with the previous burn, the crew had to perform the maneuver above the far side of the moon, out of contact with Earth. The burn occurred exactly on time. The spacecraft telemetry was required as it re-emerged from behind the moon at 89 hours, 28 minutes, and 39 seconds, the exact time calculated. When voice contact was regained, Lovell announced, please be informed there is a Santa Claus, to which Ken Manigley, the current Capcom, replied, that's affirmative. You are the best ones to know. The spacecraft began its journey back to Earth on December 25th, Christmas Day. 
later, Lovell used some otherwise idle time to do some navigational sightings, maneuvering the module to view various stars by using the computer keyboard. However, he accidentally erased some of the computer's memory, which caused the inertial measurement unit to think the module was in the same relative position it had been in before liftoff and fire the thrusters to correct the module's attitude. Once the crew realized why the computer had changed the module's attitude, they realized they would have to re-enter data that would tell the computer its real position. It took Lovell 10 minutes to figure out the right numbers, using the thrusters to get the stars Rigel and Sirius aligned, and another 15 minutes to enter the corrected data into the computer. 16 months later, Lovell would once again have to perform a similar manual realignment under more critical conditions during the Apollo 13 mission after the module's inertial measurement unit had to be turned off to conserve energy. In his 1994 book, Lost Moon, The Perilous Voyage of Apollo 13, Lovell wrote, My training on Apollo 8 came in handy. In that book, he dismissed the incident as a planned experiment requested by the ground crew. In subsequent interviews, Lovell has acknowledged that the incident was an accident caused by his mistake. The cruise back to Earth was mostly a time for crew to relax and monitor the spacecraft. As long as the trajectory specialists had calculated everything correctly, the spacecraft would re-enter two and a half days after the Earth interjection and in splashdown in the Pacific. On Christmas afternoon, the crew made their fifth, fifth television broadcast. This time they gave a tour of the spacecraft, showing how an astronaut lived in space. When they finished broadcasting, they found a small present from Deke Slayton in the food locker. A real turkey dinner with stuffing in the same kind of packs that the troops in Vietnam received. Another Slayton surprise was a gift of three miniature bottles of brandy that Boardman ordered the crew to leave alone until they landed. They remained unopened even years after the flight. There were also small presents to the crew from their wives. The next day at about 124 hours into the mission, the sixth and final TV transmission showed the mission's best video images of the Earth in a four-minute broadcast. After two uneventful days, the crew prepared for re-entry. The computer would control the re-entry, and all the crew had to do was put the spacecraft into the correct attitude, blunt and forward. If the computer broke down, Borman would take over. Once the command module was separated from the service module, the astronauts were committed to re-entry. 
six minutes before they hit the top of the atmosphere, the crew saw the moon rising above the Earth's horizon, just as had been predicted by the trajectory specialists. As they hit the thin outer atmosphere, they noticed it was becoming hazy outside as glowing plasma formed around the spacecraft. The spacecraft started slowing down and the deceleration peaked at six Gs. With the computer controlling the descent by changing the attitude of the spacecraft, Apollo 8 rose briefly like a skipping stone before descending to the ocean. At 30,000 feet, the Drogue parachute stabilized the spacecraft and was followed at 10,000 feet by three main parachutes. The spacecraft splashdown position was officially reported as 8 degrees 8 minutes north, 165 degrees 1 minute west in the North Pacific Ocean, south of Hawaii. When it hit the water, the parachutes dragged the spacecraft over and left it upside down in what was termed stable two position. About six minutes later, the command module was rightened to its normal apex up splashdown orientation by the inflatable bag uprighting system. As they were buffeted by a 10-foot swell, Borman was sick waiting for the three flotation balloons to right the spacecraft. It was 43 minutes after splashdown before the first frogmen from the USS Yorktown arrived as the spacecraft had landed before sunrise. 45 minutes later, the crew was safe on deck of the aircraft carrier. Apollo 8 came at the end of the year 1968, a year that had seen much upheaval in the United States and most of the world. Even though the year saw political assassinations, political unrest in the streets of Europe and America, and the Prague Spring, Time Magazine chose the crew of Apollo 8 as its Men of the Year for 1968 recognizing them as people who have most influenced events in the preceding year. They had been the first people ever to leave the gravitational influence of the Earth and orbit another celestial body. They had survived a mission that even the crew themselves had rated as only having a 50-50 chance of fully succeeding. The effect of Apollo 8 can be summed up by a telegram from a stranger received by Borman after the mission that simply stated, Thank you, Apollo 8. You saved 1968. One of the most famous aspects of the flight was the Earthrise picture that was taken as they came around their fourth orbit of the moon. This was the first time that humans had taken such a picture while actually behind the camera. And it has been credited with a role in inspiring the first Earth Day in 1970. It was selected as the first of Life Magazine's 100 photographs that changed the world. 
Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins said, Eight's momentous historic significance was foremost. While many space historians such as Robert see Apollo 8 as the most historically significant of all Apollo missions. The mission was the most widely covered by the media since the first American orbital flight, Mercury Atlas 6 by John Glenn in 1962. There were 1,200 journalists covering the mission, with the BBC coverage being broadcast in 54 countries in 15 different languages. The Soviet newspaper Pravda featured a quote from Boris Nikolaevich Petrov, chairman of the Soviet Intercosmos program, who described the flight as an outstanding achievement of American space sciences and technology. It is estimated that a quarter of the people alive at the time saw either live or delayed the Christmas Eve transmission during the ninth orbit of the moon. The Apollo 8 broadcast won an Emmy Award, the highest honor given by the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. Madeleine Murray O'Hare, an atheist, later caused controversy by bringing a lawsuit against NASA over the reading from Genesis. O'Hare wished the courts to ban American astronauts, who were all government employees, from public prayer in space. Though the case was rejected by the Supreme Court of the United States for lack of jurisdiction, it caused NASA to be skittish about the issue of religion throughout the rest of the Apollo program. Buzz Aldrin on Apollo 11 self-communicated Presbyterian communion on the surface of the moon after landing. He refrained from mentioning this publicly for several years and only obliquely referred to it at the time. In 1969, the United States Postal Service issued a postage stamp, Scott Catalog number 1371, commemorating the Apollo 8 flight around the moon. The stamp featured a details of a famous photograph of the Earth rise over the moon, taken by Anders on Christmas Eve, and the words, in the beginning, God, dot, dot, dot. Just 18 days after the crew's return to Earth, they were featured during the 1969 Super Bowl pregame show reciting the Pledge of Allegiance prior to the national anthem being performed by Anita Bryant. In January 1970, the spacecraft was delivered to Osaka, Japan for display in the U.S. Pavilion at Expo 70. It is now displayed at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, along with a collection of personal items from the flight donated by Lovell and the spacesuit worn by Frank Borman. Jim Lovell's Apollo 8 spacesuit is on public display in the Visitor Center at NASA's Glenn Research Center. Bill Anders' spacesuit is on display at the Science Museum in London, United Kingdom. 
Apollo 8's historic mission has been shown and referred to in several forms, both documentary and fiction. The various television transmissions and 16-millimeter footage shot by the crew of Apollo 8 was compiled and released by NASA the 1969 documentary, Debrief, Apollo 8, which was hosted by Burgess Meredith. In addition, Spacecraft Films released in 2003 a 3D disc DVD set containing all of NASA's TV and 16mm film footage related to the mission including all TV transmissions from space, training and launch footage, and motion pictures taken in flight. Portions of the Apollo 8 mission can be seen in the 1989 documentary, For All Mankind, which won the Grand Jury Prize documentary at the Sundance Film Festival. The television series American Experience aired a documentary, Race to the Moon, in 2005 during season 18. The Apollo 8 mission was well covered in the 2007 British documentary, in the shadow of the moon. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.